to Ecclesiastes chapter number 2 tonight. And as you turn there, Ecclesiastes chapter number 2, let me just fill some of you in if this is your first night. We've been preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes for the past three weeks. This would be, I believe, the fourth message in the series that we'll be preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've entitled it, Meaningless. Meaningless, And we've looked at uh, the life of Solomon, not just in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll even mention this tonight, but uh, it, Solomon, the writer of two other books in the, your Bible, the book of Song of Solomon and the book of Proverbs, and it's quite different, is it not, between his perspective of life in the book of Song of Solomon. He's young, he's zealous, he's in love, and he's comparing his love for his Savior to the love and the intimacy between a man and a woman. It's a beautiful book. And then you got the book of Proverbs and the profound wisdom and the profound vocabulary that he uses and then you get to the book of Ecclesiastes and it's like just completely different right up right out of the gate just at the very beginning as I preached just a a few weeks ago just right out of the gate just boom all is vanity all is vanity and vexation of spirit life is meaningless that's what he's saying and so we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight but before we get into it how many of you are like me and you like simplicity when it comes to instructions You like simplicity when it comes to instructions. How simple? How simple can you make it? If you can make it simpler, then you're going to be more inclined and more uh, keen to getting me to understand something. Why? Because I'm not so uh, bright, if I could put it that way. Or maybe I could put it this way in light of the illustration I'd like to share with you tonight. I'm a dummy. How many of you are dummies? How many of you are like me and you're, just be honest, you're a dummy when it comes to, uh, if you could make it a little bit simpler, I'd appreciate it because my comprehension level is only so much, okay? And so for dummies, how many of you ever heard of Four Dummies, the book, Four Dummies? You've seen it in the library, maybe you've seen it over at Barnes & Noble, and there's a lot of different kinds of books that they offer. Four Dummies is an extensive series of instructional reference books which are intended to present non-intimidating guides for readers new to various topics covered. The series has been worldwide and had worldwide success rather with additions in numerous languages. The books are an example, uh, excuse me, are, are an example of a media franchise consistently sporting a distinctive cover, usually yellow and black, with a triangle-headed cartoon figure known as Dummy Man and an informational backboard style, uh, blackboard style logo. Uh, pose is simple and direct, bold icons such as pieces, a piece of string tied around an index finger and placed in the margin to indicate particular important messages and passages. And just for fun tonight, uh, can we look at some of the most bizarre and very real four dummy book titles by Dummy Man? Any, the, I mean, these are the most profound, the dumbest. I googled it and I researched it in my deep theological study this week, and here's what I came up with. Ready? Here's the first one. Becoming more mindful for dummies. Think of the irony of that. Becoming more mindful for dummies. There it is. Here's another one. Becoming a great dad for dummies. Becoming a great dad for dummies. How many of you dads would appreciate that book right there? All right, here we go. Dating for dummies. Number three, dating for dummies. This one's very specific. Number four, eBay for seniors for dummies. (laughs) Not to be confused with eBay for dummies. This is eBay for seniors for dummies. I got one for you, Brother Alex. Here we go. Flirting for dummies. He turned off my mic. What a bum. All right, the next one. Very profound. Happiness for dummies. 
happiness for dummies. You don't know how to be happy and you're a dummy? Here's a book for you. This one is very broad. Number seven, how to fix everything for dummies. Is it there? How to fix everything for dummies. Number, uh, what are we on? Number eight, I love this one. <laughs> Living with hepatitis C for dummies. <laughs> if you have hepatitis C and you don't know how to live with yourself and you're a dummy, this book is the book for you. Number nine, raising smart kids for dummies. <laughs> raising smart kids for dummies. And my favorite, this is a very real book. It's, it's my life book, book and I read it every week before I preach. Ready, number 10, preaching for dummies. Preaching for Dummies, it's actually a real book, Preaching for Dummies. Now go over to Ecclesiastes chapter number two and we'll get into the lesson tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter number two and we'll do what we did last week. Let's read one verse and then we'll get into the message tonight and we'll be covering a lot again in regards to Ecclesiastes chapter number two and even into chapter number three. Bible says, therefore I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vexation or excuse me vanity and vexation of spirit tonight i'd like to add to your library the newest volume to the dummy series fresh off the press from king solomon himself here we go how to hate your life for dummies that's what i'd like to talk to you about tonight how to hate your life for dummies. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing and we'll get into the message tonight. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me in a very real way, that you'd help me and that uh, as I begin to expound upon the scriptures, I would not say any new thing because like we are going to learn tonight, there's nothing new under the sun. Lord, you spoke it into existence and that includes your word and so I pray that as I exploit the truth tonight, I wouldn't reveal anything new, but I'd simply reveal something that we all know, but maybe we are guilty of not depending upon. Lord, I pray that you'd help me tonight and again, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit. I empty myself the best that I know how and I desire tonight to preach only Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that I, I would preach nothing that you don't want me to preach and I'd preach everything that you do want me to preach for it's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for reading with me. For the past several weeks, we've been looking again into the life of King Solomon through a lenses or through the lenses of his own fatalistic perspective of this thing we call life. We discussed the contrast again between the earlier writings in the book of Song of Solomon and again the zeal and the passion that he had when he wrote the book of Song of Solomon and then also the contrast from Ecclesiastes and the contrast between the book of Proverbs. Man, the book of Proverbs is actually next to Psalms one of the most quoted passages or quoted books in all of the word of God and it's because of the vocabulary, it's because of the rich wisdom that Solomon exuberates and so it's quite different though. Solomon's approach is very different, much more fatalistic than it was in his previous two books it is evident and clear that as we progress through the life of Solomon we really digress through the life of Solomon when it comes to his wisdom and when it comes to his fatalistic perspective of this beautiful thing it's a beautiful thing we call life Again, we talked about this uh, last week, but this paradigm shift in Solomon's outlook on life is largely due to the lies that he was feeding himself. And that's what we spoke about last week, the lies that we feed ourselves. No one is a bigger liar than yourself to yourself. You don't need to worry about the lies that everybody else is going to tell you. You need, you need to worry about believing the lies that you will tell yourself. As we learned last week, as Solomon did, eventually you'll start believing the lies you tell yourself. And that'll get you into a heap of trouble. That's what Solomon did. He believed his heart. And the Bible says in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
And the devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy would love nothing more than for you to just buy into the idea, just follow your heart. Just do what your heart tells you to do. Follow your heart, and that's what Solomon was doing. If I find more, I'll find purpose. If I do more, I'll find purpose. If I get more, I'll find purpose. He was searching for purpose and meaning in possessions and things, in relationships, and all these different things, but really he was just neglecting the fact that he was vexated. Uh, we learned this last week. You know what he was? Greatly and utterly depressed. I'm talking about a very severe depression, so much so that he hated his own life. But we've seen that the more and more Solomon interjected himself in things and ideas, the more depraved he felt. The farther and farther he got into his pursuit of happiness, and remember, happiness and meaning is found when Christ is at the pinnacle, as they just sang, when, when Christ captivates you, when he is your center, you'll find meaning. Anything else excluding that, you'll find depression, you'll find vexation of spirit, to put it in Solomon terms, everything is vanity when Christ is not at the center of your life. We could say it this way, and just in light of the title of our series, life is meaningless when Christ is not at the center. And Solomon was discovering that more and more when God was not at the center of Solomon's life, when Christ was not, or excuse me, God was not the pinnacle of Solomon's life, the more and more depressed he became. As we uh, closed last week, I, I, I took it very seriously, and I hope that you derived from my tone that I did not take it lightly. We ended with the saddest thing that anybody who breathes the breath of life can ever utter, and we read it just a moment ago in verse number 17. Solomon finally came to the conclusion that I hate my life I hated my own existence how did he get there how did he get to the position where he hated his own existence he hated his own life let me ask this question tonight what would lead someone to uh, go down a path so dark that they hate something as beautiful as the gift of life now I know I was trying to be maybe humorous to gain our attention, but I want you to understand, and I want everybody to make eye contact with me because this is very serious tonight. Although I'm making light, and although tonight I entitled the message, How to Hate Your Life for Dummies, you know what's not a laughable matter? Depression. Very real thing. It's a very real thing, and don't, do not buy into the lie that Christians do not suffer from it. Depression is a very real thing. You know what else is real? Self-loathing. When you hate yourself as Solomon did, you know what that could even lead you to do? Self-harm cause you to hurt yourself, cause you to cut yourself, cause you to cause harm to your physical body, and maybe even in extreme cases, and God forbid that this would ever happen to anybody in this room, but I am not going to buy into the lie that someone might not be struggling with this. It might even lead you to take your own life. I just want to let you know I'm taking it very seriously tonight. Very serious matter when it comes to depression, self-harm, self-loathing, even suicide. Can I tell you something, and we're going to get to this at the end of the message? Every good gift and every perfect gift coming from above, including life. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, as I read last week in the book of Psalms 138. We're fearfully and wonderfully made in whose image? God's image. Let me tell you something tonight. If you're just, let me just go ahead and give the invitation now. If you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with self-loathing, if you're struggling with even suicidal thoughts, can I just give you a glimmer of hope? And it's a great hope. God loves you. Man, God loves you, he gave his son for you, and God loves you, and although it might feel like no one else loves you and everyone else has abandoned you, God will never leave you and never forsake you. And so again, I understand that the conclusion that I wrote, or excuse me, that I derived from the dummy series was fictional. That doesn't actually exist, obviously. The last one was a farce. It wasn't real. How to hate your life for dummies. But what if it were real? What if Solomon really did pin the words to how to hate your life for dummies? That's what I'd like us to look at tonight. What would he say? 
What would he tell us? How do you get to the place where you hate your life? How do you get to the place where you hate your life? If you're taking notes this evening, number one, I believe Solomon would have us know this. If you're going to hate your life, number one, live without established parameters. Live without established parameters. Look at verse number two of Ecclesiastes chapter two. It says, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Look at verse 10 again. It says, Whatsoever my eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. In other words, if Solomon wanted it, he went and got it. If Solomon desired to have it, he bought it. If it was something that he could buy with money, something he could buy with his, his, uh, his possessions, he would buy it. No pleasure was withheld from Solomon, whether it was possessions, pleasures, or even people. He had some 700 wives and 300 concubines. He did not withhold himself from any pleasure, anything he says in verse 10, my heart desired, I went after it, and I got a hold of it, and I got it. If it made Solomon happy, Solomon went after it full-fledged. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. Solomon had the just one more syndrome. Just one more. What's the just one more syndrome? Just one more chariot and I'll be happy. Just one more gold-plated shield and I'll be happy. Just one more wife and I'll be happy. One more concubine, I'll be happy. One more possession, I'll be happy. One more lion, I'll be happy. One more plated gold of, of, of stone and ivory, I'll be happy. One more throne, I'll be happy. One more temple, I'll be happy. Just one more and I'll find satisfaction. That was Solomon's life. Everything was, he was trying to gain this possession or trying to gain this thing or trying to gain this person because he's seeking for purpose and he's seeking for meaning. Just one more. Just one more and I'll be satisfied. If I can remove all the parameters that are withholding me from what is making, going to make me happy and give me purpose, then I'll find meaning. Solomon endeavored to tear down all the walls that were holding him back from having all that he wanted. And you know what he discovered? As he's tearing down the walls and the parameters that he set in front of him, as he's tearing down everything to try to get what, so he, he, what he so desperately wants, he found that the opposite was true. He found that the opposite was true. He found that the opposite of what he anticipated took place. Rather than finding purpose, he found that he hated his own existence. Because he quickly realized, and I know that I've preached this already before, but he quickly realized that I cannot find purpose and I cannot find meaning in the pursuit of anything but a relationship with God. He hated his life, he says in verse 17. Let me ask you a question tonight. And I want you to think about it. Who is the one who established parameters to begin with? I'm talking about in general, I'm talking about from the beginning of man, who's the one who established parameters to begin with? Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we have mankind, and they're living in a perfect world, in a perfect environment where sin has not yet marred humanity, and what does God do? Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Here's the parameter. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. You know what that is? It's a parameter. It's a guideline. It's a, it's a guardrail. It's a boundary that God established in the life of Adam, in the life of Eve. There's two ways to look at this parameter that God established. The first parameter that God established in human history, there's two ways to look at it. Number one, what an unloving, selfish, and untrusting God. 
I mean, after all, Adam and Eve were perfect. The environment was perfect. Sin did not exist. What an unloving and an unjust and an untrusting God for him to establish parameters that would take away the liberties that they so freely had in the Garden of Eden. What an unloving God. What an untrusting God. Again, Adam and Eve did nothing to deserve him implementing any kind of boundary or parameter. So why did he feel the need to put this parameter and this boundary in place to take away their liberty? This parameter was keeping Adam and Eve away from the one thing that would satisfy them and make them happy. At least that's what the devil said, isn't it? The serpent said, yeah, of course God told you that you would surely die because you know what's going to happen? The moment that you eat the fruit of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you will be as gods. God's trying to keep away your joy, your happiness. God's trying to keep away from, uh, from you finding purpose and finding meaning. That's exactly what God is doing. That's a wrong way to look at parameters. That's the wrong way to look at that parameter. That's not an accurate assessment. It's actually quite the opposite because the second way you can look at this parameter, I want you to get this. The second way you can look at this parameter is that this was keeping Adam and Eve within the confines of what would satisfy them and make them happy. No one said amen. That, the purpose of that parameter was not to keep them from what was without. The purpose of that parameter was to keep them in the confines of what would give them purpose, what would give them joy, and what would give them meaning and happiness. That's the purpose of that parameter. Parameters and boundaries are not just set in place to keep you away from something, but to keep you within something. Did you hear me tonight? I understand that the purpose of a parameter might be to keep you without something, but also it's a twofold purpose, and a greater purpose would be to keep you in the confines of what you ought to be doing. Keep you in the confines of what will bring you joy and will bring you happiness. I know there are kids in here, but as I was preparing, you know what I thought? I thought of what Pastor said this morning about purity. I was thinking about purity, and in my own life, I can remember the parameters that my parents set in place, taking away my liberty, by the way, as a 12 and a 13 and a 14 and a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old boy, taking away my liberty. You know what they were doing? They were keeping me without they wanted to make sure that I did not experience what was outside the walls of the boundaries and the parameters that they would experience. And by the way, let me just talk about that for a minute. If you're a young person or if you're a single person today, it's going to keep you away from something. It's going to keep you away from some things. I understand you have STDs and sexually transmitted diseases and all those things and unplanned pregnancies and just a life of waste and trash and filth. And, and I mean, but you know what it does keep you within the confines of? Real joy. And I'm not trying to be graphic tonight, but what I get to experience with my wife, the only my wife and me get to experience, I'm so glad my parents set up those parameters in my life. I'm so glad that I had those parameters set up where not only did it protect me from what was without, but it kept me in the confines of what brought me true joy and happiness. By the way, while we're on the topic, parents have parameters. By the way, while we're on the topic, God implements parameters in our life because he hates us, right? No. God puts parameters and, and boundaries in our life. Why? Because he loves us. And any parent that loves their child will set up parameters in their life. That's just how it's going to be. Let me, make some, let me ruin some teenagers' nights tonight. Go home and check your, parent, your, your kids' phones tonight. If you do not make it, and, and this is my preference. I'm, I'm out from behind the pulpit, so I'm not preaching thus saith the Lord. This is Lamar verse 1. My kids, this is just me, my kids are not going to have a cell phone until they're like, I don't know, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. In this day and age in which we live in, that makes absolutely no sense. Okay, that's your prerogative, and I'm not saying it's sin, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I can tell you right now, when I go over and I pinch my son's arm, you know what I feel? Flesh. And he's two years old, two and a half, three years old. One day he's going to be 12, 13, 14. I wish I could just skip those years right over and go right into adulthood, but you know what I understand? He's a young man. 
And you know what I'm going to do? Set up parameters. Lamar, are you saying I should take away my kid's cell phone? Do what you want, but have something. Have some sort of parameter set up in place where you're going to protect your children. And I'm not just talking about a cell phone. I'm talking about internet blockers. I'm talking about the friends that they're going to have. Hey, we're to be in the world, not of the world. I understand that we don't need to isolate everybody where people look at us. And we're so hyper-separated where we don't even, uh, something happens in the world and we don't hear what happens in the world for three days because we're so isolated. I'm not talking about being isolated, but I am talking about setting up some good parameters. Talking about having some guidelines and, and some basic boundaries. Why? Because you love your kids. At least you ought to. And you know what would be a product of you loving your kids? Don't let them do what they want to do. Set up some parameters. By the way, while we're on the topic, your pastor has been put in your life to help you set up parameters. Dead silence. But it's true. Pastor Farinella has been placed in your life not to tell you what to do, but to tell you what you ought to do. Not dependent upon what he thinks, but dependent upon this book right here. I'm just saying, I'm being honest with you tonight, you'd be a fool. You'd be a fool. We're going to see that tonight. You would be a fool not to heed the parameters that your pastor tries to set up for you. Why? Because he hates you. No. Because he loves you. Parameters are not a bad thing. Parameters are a great thing. They don't just keep us from what is without, although they do that. They keep us in the confines of what will bring us true joy and true happiness. Once Solomon began to step outside of the parameters rather than finding fulfillment, you know what he found? Failure. Whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. He got everything that he wanted, but he didn't like what he got. It's never enough. Still felt meaningless, still felt dissatisfied, and he comes to the conclusion that he hates his own existence. Why? No parameter set in place. How do you guarantee to live a life that you will hate? Live without established parameters. Secondly, tonight, very quickly, live without eternal perspective. Live without eternal perspective. We won't read, but verses 12 through verse 23, Solomon goes on this rant of all rants, okay? And so he's going on this rant, and he's distressed with the way that his life has turned out. He's dissatisfied with what his life has produced, and he's disgusted with what his life has amounted to. All is vexation and vanity of spirit. I hate my life. He's going on this rant. You know what he wants us to know? He wants us to uh, understand some things. Here's what he wants you to know, and here's what he's discovered. Hey, just live for now because tomorrow's not promised. Live for today because tomorrow's not promised. Live for right now, whatever life you're in or whatever state of life you're in, just live for what is today. Don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's not guaranteed. Get what you can and can what you get. How many of you have ever heard that statement before? Get what you can and can what you get. Teaches us a few things about the now. Really quickly, I want us to notice, number one, he teaches us the insanity of elitism. The insanity of elitism. Lamar, what is elitism? Elitism is the attitude or behavior of a person or group who regards themselves as belonging to an elite. You know what, what Solomon thought of himself? I'm God's gift to mankind. I'm smart. I'm wise. I got a thousand women in my life. I'm obviously handsome. I've got everything that anybody could ever want. I'm part of the elite. Look at verse number 11 and verse number 12. It says, Then I looked on all the works that my hand had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? 
even that which hath been already done. Solomon believed, he really believed that in his lifespan, get this, in his lifespan, he would either think of something, invent something, or do something that no one else had ever done before. Solomon was really convinced that his ideas were original ideas. Solomon was convinced that the kind of wealth that he had, the kind of knowledge that he had, and the possessions that he had was the first of its kind. Let me put it in millennial terms. Solomon thought he was OG. How many of you know what OG means? Let me explain what OG means. OG is short for original gangster. And it means this, someone who's incredibly exceptional, authentic, or old school. That describes Solomon. Solomon thought he was the original. Solomon thought he was God's gift to mankind. Solomon thought that he was amongst the elite. One big problem, though. Solomon quickly realized that all of his ideas, plans, and admirations in life were far from original. They were far from original. It wasn't something that originated with Solomon. Solomon was not the, or, 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 he was not the one who thought of wealth. He was not the one who thought of, of all of his possessions. And finally, he comes to the realization that there's nothing new under the sun. How many of you have ever seen the show Shark Tank? How many of you love the show Shark Tank? I love watching the show Shark Tank, but you know what bothers me? Those jokers have stolen every single one of my ideas. <laughs> have you ever watched it and you're like, I thought of that. I thought of that and they're getting like millions of dollars on this patent on an idea that I came up with. Something that I, I originated and I get bothered all the time watching it because you know why? Because I thought of it first. No, actually I didn't think of it first, did I? And they probably didn't think of it first either. Why? There's nothing new under the sun. Everything that we think is original is not original. Everything that we think is, is great in regards to our ideas and our, our, our perspectives, it's nothing is original. Everything, it, nothing is new under the sun. Solomon believed because of his elitism, by the way, that he was above the rules and that they didn't apply to Solomon. What rules? I'll illustrate it this way. There was a DEA officer. DEA is the Drug Enforcement Association. Uh, and so he goes to inspect this Texas farm, and he walks up to the farmer, or the rancher, rather, and he tells him that he's going to be inspecting. He said, hey, I'm here from the DEA, and I'm going to be inspecting your, your property and your fields to make sure that everything checks out. And uh, he was a small guy, by the way. The DEA officer was a small guy, probably about my size, but maybe about Pastor Farinella's height. And so, no one laughed, okay. Uh, my size, Pastor Farinella's height, small guy, and so he had what we like to call big uh, little dog syndrome. You know what little dog syndrome is? When you're a little dog, but you've got a big bark to try to make up for your little dog. All right? So that's what, that's what uh, the DEA officer, uh, he comes to him and he says, I'm going to inspect your field. I'm going to start with this field over here. And the, and the, uh, uh, the rancher stops him. He's like, hey, hey, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're here. You can inspect the field and you can do all that, but you just can't look at that field. DEA officer got a mad look in his eye, began to scout the man. And he says, do you know who I am? Do you know where I come from? And he pulls out his wallet. He says, do you know who I am? Look at this badge right here. You know what this badge tells me? I'm part of the DEA. I'm sent from the state. I can go in that field, that field, that field, your barn. I can walk in your house. I can sleep in your bed. I can eat a bowl of cereal, and you can't do anything about it. Guy said, I'm sorry. I'll back off. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Absolutely. I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't mean to get in your way. And so he says, that's right. Step aside. Walks over to the field, begins to evaluate the field, and the farmer goes inside. 
A couple minutes later, he hears the blood-curdling scream of a man running as fast as he can away uh, in the field, running along the fence line, and he comes out, and he's like, help, help, and right behind him, his prize bull was chasing the DEA officer, and he's screaming for help, 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 and the, and the rancher just yells back, show him your badge. <laughs> We're not nearly as elite as we think we are. And sometimes in life we can, we can persuade ourselves and we can cause ourselves to think that we're amongst elite when it comes to our idealism, when it comes to the things that we have. Nothing is new under the sun. Solomon thought that he was amongst the elite of humanity, but then he comes to the conclusion, I hate my life. Why? Because no idea I've come up with and no uh, concept that I've, I've born, everything is vanity, everything is not new. Nothing is new under the sun. The insanity of elitism, he also teaches us the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death, verse 13, it says, Then I saw that wisdom exceeded folly, as far as the light exceedeth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness, and I myself perceive also, here it is, that one event happeneth to them all. One event happeneth to them all. I wonder what event he's talking about. Solomon says that it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're young or if you're old, if you're dumb or if you're smart, if you like Popeye's chicken or you like Chick-fil-A, guess what? All of us are going to face one event. All of us are going to come to the end of our lives and we're going to face what event? Verse 15 tells us the event. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I uh, then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Then he says, therefore I hated life. Solomon says that he's been living for the now with no eternal perspective. And you know what it got him? He says that it didn't matter how smart he was because he couldn't outthink it. He said it doesn't matter how wealthy I am because he couldn't outbuy it. It didn't matter how healthy he was because he couldn't outlive it. When everything is said and done, we're all going to attend one event. And that is the inevitability of our death. Everyone will die. The insanity of elitism. I'm not nearly as... Cool as I thought I was, as original as I thought I was, as elite as I thought I was. He also teaches us the inevitability of death. We're all going to face eternity. Every single man, woman, boy, and girl, it doesn't matter again how smart or dumb or how old or how young you are. We're all going to face that one event, and that is we're all going to die. Also teaches us this. I like this one, the impossibility of legacy. The impossibility of legacy. I want you to look at verse 18. It says, yea. I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he uh, shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall, I, uh, yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity, therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun." Solomon spent his whole life accumulating this magnificent legacy. Then he realized that he was going to have to take the legacy that he had worked so hard to accumulate and take it with him into death. No. He's going to transition that legacy to the next generation. It's not something that he gets to take with him. And that's exactly what happens. Solomon passes from the scene and he passes on this great legacy to Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Within 20 years, the kingdom would split in two. 
20 years of the passing of, uh, passing of Solomon, the kingdom would split in two and eventually both kingdoms would find themselves in captivity uh, to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians. What happened to Solomon's legacy then? Gone. It amounted to nothing. Why? He lived without eternal perspective. I'm not saying that having a legacy is, not, uh, is, is a bad thing. I'm simply saying that if that's what you're living for and that's what you're striving for and that's what you're trying to accumulate, you can't take it when you go into eternity. You know what the next generation is gonna do? God's gonna take that, that wealth and that, uh, that fame and anything that you have and he's gonna simply give it away and it can amount to nothing. How do we guarantee to live a life that we hate? Live without established parameters. Live without boundaries. Just live free, don't have boundaries, don't have parameters. Here's how you hate your life. I'll live a life that you'll hate is live without eternal perspective. Just live for the now, don't live for tomorrow. Thirdly and lastly, live without excellent principles. Live without excellent principles. And let me just say this, come back next week, I hope you will. Uh, this, this whole series has kind of been discouragement, vexation of spirit, vanity. Next week, we're gonna find out how to enjoy life. And I don't want to get too much into it tonight, but Solomon is now going to conclude this ongoing rant about his dissatisfaction with what his life has produced. And it boils down to two very important life-changing principles. You ready for them? Two very important life-changing principles. Here's the first one. True enjoyment is only from God's hand. True joy and true enjoyment is only from God's hand. Solomon recognized that true fulfilling joy could not only be found, excuse me, could only be found when it was directly from the hand of God. Notice that Solomon was not saying that life cannot be an enjoyable experience. And again, I hope that that's not what you've gleaned from this series. I promise if you come back next week, we're going to find out how to enjoy life. That was not Solomon's intention. And it could be easy to derive from the life of Solomon that he was against education and wealth and entertainment and work and pleasures and relationships. That's actually, that's not what he's saying at all. But education, wealth, entertainment, work, pleasures and relationships only by themselves can't satisfy. Look at verse number 24 of our passage. It says, there is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, very important, here's the principle, that it, is, it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten thereunto more than I? Solomon is literally saying the only way to get true joy and fulfillment out of the pleasures of life is to recognize where they came from. The only way to get true joy and pleasure out of your life is to recognize that it's nothing that you did, it's something that came directly from what? It says it in the text, the hand of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above, James chapter number one and verse number 17 says, and he cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. I'm gonna be honest, sometimes I find myself in this state, but all the time I hear people complaining about their job, it's a gift from God. Complaining about their family, family is a gift from God. Complaining about their possessions, your possessions are a gift from God. Complaining about your spouse, your spouse is a gift from God. Complaining about your children, your children are a gift from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. True enjoyment is only from God. Second principle he teaches us is this. True enlightenment is only from God. True enjoyment is only from God, and true enlightenment is only from God. Look at verse number 26. It says, For God giveth 
to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. I don't think we realize how powerful that verse is because we don't understand the context of what that verse is saying. Here's what Solomon is saying. Solomon is saying that there are uh, those who gather, hoard, and heap up. And who do they uh, think that they're collecting for? All right, so he says that they gather and they heap up that they may give that is good and uh, what, uh, what is good before God. They're gathering and they're heaping, but who do they think that they're gathering for? Themselves. They gather and they heap. They live life in the pursuit of pleasure. They live life in the pursuit of, of possessions. They live light, uh, life in pursuit of, of fame or, or money or something of that nature. Why? So that they can benefit themselves. But who, uh, excuse me, but who is the one who can provide, or excuse me, who is the one who has provided it, and who is the one who will eventually get it when everything is said and done? God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. And you know, just as quickly as God gave it to you, God can take it away. Just as quickly as God has bestowed his blessings upon you and bestowed all those things that I mentioned just before, just as quickly as he's given it to you, he can take it away. Why? It's his to begin with. But the sinner he giveth, that is God giveth, that he might give to him that is uh, good before God. Understand that he's not talking about wealth, pleasures, or possessions either. What does he say? He says wisdom and knowledge and joy. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about your life. He's talking about your life. So in other words, God gives the life and you can choose what to do with it, but eventually he's going to redistribute and invest how your life, or excuse me, your life how he sits fit. God is the one who gives you the life, and you're able to, I'm so thankful for free will. I'm thankful we're not a bunch of robots just walking around doing exactly what God wants us to do. I'm thankful that we can choose to love God. We can choose to serve God. We can choose to do all those things. But nonetheless, you can live your life how you want. But at the end of the day, God can take your life, and God can do with your life, and those things that you've left behind, he can distribute it however he sees fit. Either way, it's his. What's his? Your life, your possessions, your relationships, your education, your wealth. Solomon says that he didn't set up parameters in his life. Solomon says that he didn't live with eternal perspective. And then Solomon says that he didn't apply these two principles to his life. And all this did for him was lead him down a road where he found despair, frustration, vexation of spirit, and eventually deep depression. How do we guarantee to live a life that we hate? Live without established parameters. Just live free and don't set up any boundaries. Live without eternal perspective. Live for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Get all you can, can all you get. Live for the now and live without excellent principles. What excellent principles? Neglecting the fact that everything that's been given to you in this life is not yours and it didn't come from you. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. In closing, can we all agree when we look at Solomon's life, and again, I, I want to make sure that you understand this because I mentioned this last week, Solomon's life was not a waste. And neither is your life either. Maybe you've done some things you're not proud of. Maybe you're not satisfied with how your life has been lived. But life is a beautiful thing and it's a wonderful thing and it's a gift from God. But maybe you're like Solomon and you look at your life and can we all agree, Solomon's life was a heap of trash. It was a mess. It was a heap of garbage. Keturah is a town on the outskirts of Paraguay. There are some kids there who are making some absolutely beautiful music. They're taking wash tubs and turning them into kettle drums. 
They're taking drain pipes and turning them into trumpets. They're literally taking trash and garbage from a landfill and playing musical songs, or excuse me, musical classics like Beethoven's Fifth, William Tell Overture, and Canon in D. On their side of town, garbage is the only crop that they can harvest. With Keturah being located on a landfill, the locals had to be resourceful in making a living. Men will dig and search through garbage for hours a day in search of anything that they can sell and make money off of. Many of the children suffer from the same fate or suffer the same fate as the garbage in which they live, discarded and cast out. Little to no opportunity to receive a formal education, the luxury of learning and playing an instrument seemed like a fantasy. However, thanks to the intuition and creative thinking of two men, they're now not only making music, they're inspiring countless millions with their story. Favo Chavez and Luis uh, Cesar began turning trash into instruments and teaching these children how to play music on these recycled pieces of rubbish. Musicians, conductors, composers, and some of the most influential music icons in today's world have traveled to Keturah just to hear these children play. Because of their popularity, they gained quite a following from the media, including segments on mainstream news platforms, an interview on CBN 60 Minutes, and even a full-length movie entitled The Landfill Harmonic. The recycled orchestra, as they have become to know, be known by, has had the opportunity to travel the world, bring, uh, excuse me, bring life and excitement to some of the greatest classical, uh, classical and modern arrangements that music has to offer, all being played on Drums made from the dump, guitars made from garbage, and horns made from heaps of trash. As I read that story just a few weeks ago, I couldn't help but think that that's exactly what God has done with every single person in this room. He delights in making beautiful music out of riffraff. Heaven's orchestra is filled today with very unlikely musicians. Peter is the one who denied, excuse me, Peter, the one who denied our precious Savior, is playing the trumpet. Paul, the religious thug who killed Christians, is first chair violinist. The harp is masterfully played by the womanizing, murdering, and adulterous man named David. The clarinet is being played by one who knew every man in town, Rahab the harlot. And perhaps King Solomon, the self-loathing fatalist who hated life, is playing the lowly triangle when the music permits. Maybe all of you, when you evaluate your life, you think that all you have to offer God is a pile of trash. Maybe you feel like your life is meaningless and worthless and just a pile of rubbish. If that's you, I've got some great news for you. God is still looking for people for his recycled orchestra. God is still desiring to find people who will admit that their life is just a bunch of trash, but God is in the business of taking those whose lives accumulate to just a pile of garbage and making beautiful music. Maybe you feel like Solomon and you hate your life, but understand that God loved you so much that he gave his only son to die for you. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. You can find true joy in life when we understand that life is a gift from God and we keep him at the center. So here's the invitation. And it's very similar to last week. I just want to ask a question. And I want to be real with everybody in this room tonight. Again, there are people that I don't assume that I know are suffering from depression. There are people that I know are suffering from uh, self-loathing. They despise themselves. I, I know that there's some people that are struggling or have struggled with self-harm. 
And I even know of some individuals in this room right now who are struggling with thoughts of suicide or thoughts, have had thoughts of suicide. Can I tell you something? You might feel like you're garbage. You might feel like you're trash. You might look at your life and say, no one loves me. You might look at the things that you've done and all the things that you've accomplished and say, I have nothing to offer God but a big pile of heaping garbage. Can I tell you? That's all he wants. God loves you. God desires to have a relationship with you. And I just want to ask you this question. Are you willing to give your life, that includes your vexation of spirit, your depression, anything that you're struggling with, are you willing to give it to God? Because I can tell you right now, he can do a lot more with it than you can. And I'm serious, if there's somebody that's struggling with any of those things, I encourage you to come to the altar tonight and to pray, but I'd encourage you to find somebody to pray with. I'd encourage you to find somebody because you'll find that God is not the only one that loves you. It might feel that way at times. Maybe you're a young person and you feel like your parents hate you. Uh, maybe you're a spouse and you feel like your spouse hates you. Maybe you're, you're just by yourself and life has not gone how you thought it was supposed to go and you feel like you're unloved. Not only does God love you, but we love you in here. And if you're struggling with any of those things tonight, let me just encourage you. Grab somebody by the hand and come down and thank the Lord that he loves us so much. He gave us his son, but also thank the Lord that we are in a church that is all for helping people that are suffering from all of those things. You know why? Because all of us are just piles of garbage. That's all of us, and in regards to our life and in regards to what it amounts to, can we all be honest with ourselves tonight? How many of us think we're amongst the elite? I, I can tell with firsthand experience in regards to my life and looking at my life, I have nothing to offer God but a big pile of garbage, but I'm so thankful that I gave it to him. You know why? Because he can make beautiful music out of a mess. So if that's you tonight, I'd encourage you to come forward and pray with somebody tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I pray